Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, well, today is uh, December 17th. This is the 15th and final lesson in our uh, study of the book of Ecclesiastes. So it's good to see you all here. And I've been looking forward to this day. I, tell, I love to finish things, and so it's good to... to uh, have this closure to this this project. Thank you for persevering with me through these uh, 15 weeks, I guess, since we have 15, 15 <coughs> lessons. So we are literally at the end in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12. That feels a little loud. Is that okay? Okay, all right. Okay, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get started. <coughs> Our Father, we thank you very much for all of your kindness and goodness that you've given us already today, that we find ourselves here with health and, uh, and vitality and strength and desire to be here. And, and we thank you for arranging your good providence for us to be here together today. And not only for this hour, but for our worship time and our fellowship time, uh, we ask for your uh, the ministry of your spirit among us, uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified. And we thank you so much for your word that you've given to us, you've preserved for us, and that we have it uh, in our laps or in our, uh, in our devices. And so now, minister to us by your word, and minister to those that are here, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, I want you to turn to uh, chapter 12, but we're going to go back to the first of the book in just a moment. <coughs> what I would like to do today is uh, look over these verses. We only have, we're going to start with chapter 12, verse 8. So we, uh, we only have, what, seven verses to cover. They're, they're pretty full, but then I'd like to, hope to have some time at the end of our time to let you kind of tell what what maybe has some takeaways that you've had that you have from the book of Ecclesiastes. I just uh, I had the the advantage of last night just looking through all 15, 14 lessons and and found uh, 12 things that that I think are meaningful to me from the book. So uh, we'll do that. But notice verse eight. Let's start there. Ecclesiastes 12, 8. Uh, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. So remember that and then turn back to, the, to chapter 1. Oh, by the way, remember, remember this word vanity. Um, the, literal, the literal meaning of the word is breath or air, mist, vapor. <clears throat> it's the key word in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used 37 times. I don't know why you remember this, but way back in the first or second lesson, we talked about the numerology in the book and how that was interesting. Um, but it's a, it's the key word that, that actually frames the book. And we're going to look back at. Uh, oh, so so the word in Ecclesiastes seems to be either brief, you know, like a uh, like a mist over the over the lake or the or the pond in the morning that goes away. 
quickly, or it's elusive, like a like a, a wisp of uh, a smoke, and you see it for a moment, and it go it goes away. So, same similar kinds of words. We looked at we looked at different places in the Bible that that uses this word to describe our human frailty and how brief our life is, and and uh, things like that. Now, so back in Ecclesiastes chapter one, uh, verse two. Now this verse is almost the same as chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So notice uh, right at the beginning of the, of the book and then at the end of the book we have this almost the same, same verse. And, uh, so this is, uh, in my reading, some guys get really intense on the literary kind of uh, device here. This is called framing. Uh, sometimes they call it an inclusio, where you have a, a passage at the beginning, a, a statement at the beginning of a passage and one at the end, and it frames the passage so that so that so you know kind of what's going on. And uh, uh, it maybe kind of defines the passage. Um, Another one talked about it. Another, another uh, student of the of this literary device said it's kind of like the the uh, covers of a book. They define the book. It, so when when we see this this vanity of vanities at the beginning of the book and then at the end, <coughs> kind of the author saying, uh, "This is what I'm trying to get across to you." And you can see my note there, this was really interesting that one, uh, let's see, somebody named E.S. Christensen, I don't know who that is, quoted by, by uh, Bartholomew, the Old Testament scholar. I think that's a lady. She said that chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 12, verse 8 are like two identical doors at either end of the same room serving as the only entrance and exit respectively. Kind of like the author saying, you can't get in or out of this story without understanding you know, what, I'm trying to, uh, what I'm trying to say to you. Maybe kind of like uh, the signature of the author, I'm opening my, my message to you and I'm closing it uh, to you. So <clears throat> interesting to see how that's put together. Um, some, some scholars think that there's an editor involved in this book that verses uh, one through, chapter one, verses three through eight, uh, were kind of maybe by a narrator, by an editor. And at the end of the book, we see 12, one through seven, kind of the same, uh, same kind of thing. I don't think it really matters, but um, that was interesting to me to see, see how this frames, uh, frames the book. Now verse four, no, no verse three, Oops, I got a typo there. Verse, should be verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So this is the question that he's going to answer, or he's going to attempt to answer uh, in this book. I guess we will, uh, um, I guess we'll see how he did on that, maybe when we get to, our, uh, to chapter 12. So let's go now to chapter 12. And... Uh, And dig into these other <clears throat> these other verses. So, 
technically verses 8 perhaps or at least verses 9 through 14 would be considered an epilogue you know, that's a that's a, uh, a closing to a book or to a uh, to a work of, of narration so verse 9 I'll read uh, verse 9 for us notice here is what the preacher who we believe is Solomon here's what he did and how he did it um, I'm trying to think how to frame this this passage here it, it, it seems like that that what Solomon or maybe the narrator it, it, it's interesting that Solomon in verse 9 if this is Solomon speaking why he would refer to himself in the third person and why don't he say um, maybe because he's humble he, he couldn't say I'm a wise man and here's what I did so maybe that's maybe that's his his um, rhetorical device to, to uh, refer to himself but it doesn't matter uh, so verse 9 besides being wise the preacher also taught the people under, taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with a great care. So the the first point we see here is a real clear declaration that what Solomon has said is true wisdom. And I just got to thinking about um, you know, what's the context of this happening. Early on, back in the beginning of our study, we looked at the timeline of Solomon's life. And he ruled uh, for 40 years. So looking at 1 Kings, we kind of get the idea that for 20 years he did really well. And then for about 10 years is when he married the foreign wives and they, they uh, seduced him to worship their pagan gods. And he really apostatized, apparently, at that, at that time. Um, so perhaps what we see here at, at the at the end of that process, when he when he said, "I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna search and find out what life is really all about," and he you know he said, "I uh, I've got limited wealth. I can get anyone anything I want," and so he went on that pathway. That maybe what we're seeing here is his process of thinking through. Um, uh, thinking through what life should be, what what is the, what is there any any gain in toiling under the sun? So that's kind of the idea I get is um, is this is his process and and uh, now we see the result of it. So so verse nine. Oh, so he's he's wise. I, the note I got from from somebody. Let's see, uh, from Bartholomew says. The preacher is wise, that is, he resolves his struggle and arrives at a position of authentic wisdom as defined in the book of Proverbs. And what does the book of Proverbs says is the beginning of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He didn't have that when he obviously lost the fear of the one true God, the relationship or communion with the one true God when he began to worship uh, those pagan gods. It's just frightening to see the gods that he was worshiping. One of them even uh, required child sacrifice. So it's just amazing whether he got involved in that. We certainly do hope not. But uh, but you can see down in verse 13, we're going to get there, of course, in a few minutes, but the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. So there's he's returned to, to authentic, Biblical wisdom 
which begins with a humble relationship with God, and that's the foundation of, of wisdom. So when he says that he's wise, uh, I think that's what he's referring to. He's, he's returned to true biblical, biblical wisdom, authentic uh, wisdom. It's like Proverbs 9 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom. So, uh, so now what did he do? Well, he taught the people knowledge. So the point is, he wasn't just a wise man, an ivory tower scholar, just reading and learning for his own benefit. Uh, he used what he had learned to teach, teach others, particularly young people, but it's good for, for all of us. Um, and I just, um, I just notice here that if you look at point number three, how did he do it? He consulted many proverbs, and if our chronology is right, he wrote most of these proverbs. And maybe, I, I don't know, I'm just grabbing at something that may be true or not, but maybe during this time of, uh, of apostasy and where life, was, life became really difficult for him, then maybe he delved back into these proverbs. We're going to see these three ways that he looked at the proverbs. Um, and that he came to them in a new kind of fresh way to, uh, to understand what true wisdom was. So what he did, he taught the people, but how did he do it? He did it by consulting uh, many proverbs. And you can see he had uh, three ways that he consulted the proverbs. He, he weighed them, he studied them, and he arranged them with great care. So the point is, he just didn't read these proverbs. He spent time, and notice the first word, he pondered them, means he weighed them, he listened attentively, he reflected carefully on the Proverbs. Um, he studied them. He searched them out. He carefully analyzed them. Uh, he deliberated over them. And then the, maybe the most interesting one is he arranged them. And notice that, that, our, that the ESV says, uh, arranging many Proverbs with great care. And there, there's the word straight in this uh, in this passage about arranging proverbs and, it's, and it has the idea well maybe that he made sure he had this the straight interpretation of the proverbs okay um, is that the same as correct I think so but I think uh, <coughs> That, it, that the implication is that he made sure he understood the Proverbs contextually in the, in the whole of Scripture. He didn't just grab a proverb and you know, make it mean what he wanted it to. He, uh, I think that's what the idea of straight means. And I think that this where it says here with care, with great care, there's not a, there's not a word in the Hebrew called with great care. I think that's the implication, the interpretation that he carefully made sure they were uh, they were straight, they were correctly uh, interpreted. You may know this is the the uh, the discipline of hermeneutics, and that's just a big word that means interpretation, interpreting the scripture. We would have hermeneutical principles. For example, one would be uh, you would always like I heard one guy say, never read a Bible verse 
but he didn't finish the sentence. Never read a Bible verse outside of its context. Just you know, be sure it's in, in context. Um, we would say another hermeneutical principle would be uh, interpret the, the unsure, confusing passages with passages that are not confusing. So those are just some of the principles that maybe, that maybe he used. Uh, so if he did that in the context of the scriptures, what scriptures did he have? The law, okay. Which would be what books, uh, John? I think so. I don't think he would have any of the others. Maybe, you know, Ruth or some of those stories, but primarily the law of Moses would be his context. And uh, so that really makes a lot of sense because wisdom, if you, maybe if you're with our Proverbs study, wisdom draws from creation and the story of creation through the law. And then wisdom applies applies the creation and the and the law. You know, I, I thought about this when it said with great care. I thought about Luke. Remember Luke's prologue. What did he say to uh, the reader? What did he say to that? What was his name? The Theophilus. Yeah. What did he say? Remember what he said, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I had to look. Yeah. Go ahead. That he was a witness. Yeah. Saying that he was a witness of what Jesus did. Right. He, he, he talked to a lot of witnesses. He, he made a real point how I, I thoroughly investigated these things so that, so that I could give you an accurate accounting of the story of Jesus. And I think it's the same kind of, you know, same kind of spirit there. Okay. Now, verse uh, 10. <laughs> More about his, uh, about his writing. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So, uh, not only a careful search, but his choice of words. And notice he wanted to use, he made sure he used words of delight. Can you think of words of delight that he used in, the, in his book? What would be, what are words of delight? Okay, rejoice, okay. Well, one of the guys I read, he pointed out that sometimes he used really clever uh, poetry. For example, just looking back over it in chapter 12, um, instead of in verse, uh, in verse 6, instead of saying, you're going to die, he said, before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken. So he uses beautiful words of poetry. Um, why would he do that? Why don't he just say, you're gonna die one day, period. Why does he talk about silver cords and golden bowls and broken cisterns and water? And more pleasing to read. Yeah, more pleasing to read. Maybe not only reaches the mind, but reaches the heart and the, and the emotion. I've tried to get more uh, more in love with poetry. I bought a couple of poetry anthologies of poetry, anthologies, collections of poetry. But I hadn't got, I thought I'll, I'll read one of these poems every day. Well, I'm, I'm at about once a month maybe. But uh, 
because it takes work to read them. You know, you have to interpret them. And so, uh, but anyway, uh, this this idea of of uh, of writing with beautiful words. Um, can you think of other texts in the Bible that have that sense of beauty? The, some of the Psalms, yeah. I mean, just think of Psalm 23, how beautiful it is. He could have, you know, David could have just said, God's my God and he takes care of me. But he didn't, you know, he wrote it into a beautiful poem. You know, I think about John 1, 1 through 14, the prologue of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God. It just, you know, just grabs your heart when you, uh, when you read that. Um, I think about Psalm 119. We can't see it very well, but 176 verses divided into stanzas of eight verses each, or 22 stanzas of eight verses each, and each one of those stanzas, each letter, each word begins with a he- with the same Hebrew letter. Now we know the Bible is inspired, but he used the creativity of people to do that. That is just for a Hebrew born reading that, he would go, "Whoa, look at that!" It'd be you know the, the acrostic idea of it. Um, I like our friend uh, John Gibson. He has this this quote about words. <clears throat> he said, it, "It's because of what words do that we have the Book of Ecclesiastes." God gave us words because He loves creating things. He loves changing things. He loves seeing something come into being that didn't exist beforehand. He spoke, just opened His mouth, and angels shouted for joy as the universe was born. And with a word, He created everything. Just as He, just as he spoke like that, so He speaks here. Now in these words, so that something will happen to us as we hear them. So, by the beauty of words, he makes an interesting point that um, that there's no illustrations in the Bible. Well, maybe some of your Bibles have illustrations, but the, the original authors they didn't they didn't make they didn't do paintings and you know pictures of Elijah or the you know whatever. But um, and he points out that if you have a picture, you must understand the context of the picture know what the picture means. But if you have words, you still need the context, but if you have words, you can understand what the words what the words mean. So I thought that was interesting. But the point is that he he chose words of delight that were pleasurable and uh, and desirable. Like like the point in chapter three. Uh, there is a time for everything and just you know listed those those things there. I thought that was good. Um, don't you, don't you, I just love to read good, like an editorial article or something. I, I take World Magazine and I'll, I love to read those little one-page writings of, you know, bringing up, making an argument or something like that. It's just important to read good, good writing. I don't know how to do that. That's why I give you so many quotes from other people. Um, but the power of words is a beautiful thing. And the writer, and, 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 uh, Solomon made a point to use beautiful words, but he also used words of truth that were reliable and faithful uh, and trustworthy. And then look at this quote from David Gibson. The way, the way the Bible actually works is by being beautiful because it is true. 
You got that part? It's, it's beautiful. The way the Bible works, that is, in our, in our lives, it is beautiful because it is true, and by, and by being true because it is beautiful. You got to think about that, don't you? I'm still thinking about it. But, but here's his point. The truth of the words is not detachable from the beauty of the words. So they, they go together. And I remember talking to a, uh, a young man that had just made a profession of faith and he had just started reading the Bible. And he said, I've read a lot of other books, but there is something different and unique about this book. It's, and it's because it's true and it's beautiful. Okay, well, uh, any thought about beautiful words and true words? That, they have to come together, don't they? Like Gibson says, they're not the, the beauty and the truth of them are not detachable. They, they're together. Remind you of the song, "Beautiful Words, Wonderful Words, Beautiful Words." Yeah, that, that's yeah, that's good. That's good, Steve. Okay, well, let's keep going here. Uh, verse eleven. The preacher's words guide and direct. I'll read verse eleven. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, they are given by one shepherd. Now, a little bit confusing how the Hebrew guys uh, interpret this, but kind of the idea is that these nails are firmly, what does it say? They're firmly fixed, meaning that they're fixed on the end of a goad, on the end of a stick. And a shepherd uses that stick with the nail on the end of it to keep the sheep on the right path. What the what sensation does the, cheat, does the sheep experience that motivates him to stay on the right path? Pain. 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 Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what's he saying about the, about the word? The way it keeps us on the path sometimes is, you know, gentle, uh, gentle persuasion, but sometimes it's uh, with, with correction and with, uh, and with pain. We, maybe we call it conviction sometimes. I, I thought about uh, Hebrews 4, 11, and 12. The, the Word of God is sharper than any... Anybody quote that? All good? Two-edged sword, piercing, dividing. Yeah, of the soul and the... And then what does it do? Discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Yeah, discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So... Uh, like some guy, somebody said, uh, as we read the Bible, we find the Bible to read us. And that's a beautiful thing when that happens, isn't it? That we're reading the Bible and meditating on the Bible and, and the Bible reveals our own, our own need. And that is, God's, um, that is God's kindness and goodness to us, isn't it? Well, let's see. Uh, Ian Proven said, wise words not only bring pleasure and truth, therefore, but they also bring pain as they dispel illusions and confront folly, thereby preventing the receptive listener from straying from the straight and narrow path uh, through life. And then I, I thought about 2 Timothy 3.16, and I just left the blanks there because I know you know what goes there, but let me just ask you to, to, um, to fill in the blanks. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, or 
correcting and training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. So, um, doesn't that say to us that the scriptures are sufficient for everything that we need for life and, and godliness to know God, to walk with Him, and to be uh, pleasing and to serve Him? And um, I think that's, obviously this is scripture, so I think it's a, a, a good way to describe this. But, um, Let's see, I, I think I got it. Oh, yeah, I missed that. Point number two, they are divine words that is there from one shepherd. And everybody I read said that this is referring to God, the, the chief shepherd, that these words came from God, from the chief shepherd, through uh, through the writers, but particularly in this um, in this passage here, that that literally, so you, you see what what Solomon's saying, or what the editor, the narrator, whoever it is, is saying. Um, he is elevating the Book of Ecclesiastes to Scripture, to inspiration. That's where he's what he's doing. He's going to say it again in a really strong, really strong way. Now, uh, verse twelve sounds like the Proverbs. Right. So here's a warning uh, in verse 12. And notice, uh, boy, this has canonical implications. Um, so notice it's a warning not to, not only not to add anything to the words of true wisdom, in this case, uh, the scriptures, or I think specifically he's referring to um, the book of Ecclesiastes, those nine pages, whatever it may be in your, in your Bible. But, but now that it's part of the canon, and he's referring to all scriptures, it, I think it's the same as the, remember the book of Revelation, what, chapter 22? There's a warning there. What, it's a pretty serious warning. What does it say? Uh, I don't remember, but it's, you know, don't add or subtract from these words. If if you do, your name will be taken out of the book of life or something. I mean, it's pretty serious, uh, pretty serious stuff. Anybody have it? Uh, Revelation 22, 18, and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of a prophecy contained in this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. Okay, so pretty you don't don't do this. It's not don't add or subtract from God's word. And notice what happens there. So here's the here's the book of Revelation, and here's the warning at the end of the book of Revelation. And here's the, so it's a warning for the book of Revelation specifically, but then because of its placement in the canon, the warning uh, covers the whole, the whole canon. So I think maybe we kind of see a similar thing here. This is a warning about adding to or taking away from the wisdom that, uh, that Solomon has proclaimed here, but I think it broadens to the whole, uh, to the whole scripture. Uh, just, I just want you to see this real quick. Look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. 
I just want you to see it and read it to you so that you can, it's just amazing how clear it is here in Deuteronomy 4. I'll start reading, you can catch up. I'll just start with verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the, that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor, but you who hold fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you the statutes and the rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for they will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. So notice the, the beauty of that. Moses said, don't add to or take away from these words because when you, when you keep them faithfully, um, you will prosper and you will be a testimony to the nations around you that you have wisdom. So it's interesting, it's beautiful how, the, how wisdom and the commandments uh, come together. I found this interesting quote um, from uh, somebody named Crenshaw that somebody else that Bartholomew wrote. He said, beware of an open attitude toward the canon. I thought openness was a good thing, but... So what does he mean, beware of an open attitude toward the canon of Scripture? They start adding things into the progressives do that. Okay, adding and... Okay, good. So, yeah, it's not really meaning that. You know, okay, yeah. right. good. John, what do, you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, if you're open, you're... Listening to suggestions to change it, add or take away. Okay. You can be closed when you say this is final. It's been decided. Right. Yeah. You can always project. You can put on a trajectory. A person or a family or a church or a denomination, when they start, like Jesus said, don't loosen up the scriptures. When they start doing that, everything else, it's just a trajectory. You can be a prophet and, and tell where that's going, whether it's marriage or other moral issues or not uh, the word of God keeps us in the right in the right place okay um, now my next point there will be an endless stream of writings of man but there is no need for endless wearisome search uh, for wisdom from outside the word of God I don't think I read verse 11 now verse 12 my son beware of anything beyond these of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh so he's not I don't think he's saying that it's this isn't a this isn't a prohibition of study and learning from other books but not to elevate them to the level of authority as inspiration of the scripture we learn from what other from what other teachers may teach us uh, but uh, the scripture is our authority that's why uh, you know, our church has a creed. We have a statement of faith. But I think, I know Mark wrote that, or he compiled it. I think at the end said, this is what we believe, but it does not rise to the same authority as Scripture does. So even as good as that list of the beliefs are, and we believe they're drawn from the Scripture, but the Bible is still our final rule for authority. Okay, now then, we come to the uh, last uh, two verses. 
and I have to admit, uh, last night I was looking at this and and I, uh, well, I just couldn't quite put it all together. I looked at it and worked on it, and and uh, then I went to bed. And that sometimes is a scary thing to do, but but here's what I see in these in verses 13 and 14. There are really uh, three. So notice what he says: the end of the matter. All has been heard. So he's saying there, this is the conclusion that I've come to. The the lessons of the book of Ecclesiastes. He's saying, here's, I want to tell you what I've decided, what I've come to in this journey, this circuitous investigation of all places that he's been. This is where I've come to. And then he really lists uh, three things. We're to fear God, we're to keep his commandments. And then verse 14, um, he speaks of a time of evaluation, a time of judgment. So there are three things. And as I thought about that, even through the night, I think it's really, it's really vitally important to keep them in the right order. Because the first thing he speaks of provides a foundation for the reality of the second thing. The second thing provides, with the first thing, a foundation for the third thing. Okay, so just keep that in mind. We're going to go, we're going to go through it. Um, so notice, he says, "Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man." Uh, so I made a note here: the whole duty of all mankind is to fear God and to obey God. Boy, he's just pulling it right down real tight. So if you'll, if you can get this done, if you'll do this, this is this is all of your duty. Well, I, I've been so excited all through this study. To get to that word duty, I want to know what is that word. That, that's got to be an interesting Hebrew word. And uh, um, in fact, I've, I've done some some uh, study on duty. This uh, this book, when people are big and God is small, by Ed Welch, he talks a lot about doing your duty rather than just decide. Don't just decide how you feel about it. Do your duty. So it kind of resonates with with uh, with Solomon. And I found this great article called uh, The Underappreciated Blessing of Duty. And it's a, it's a little article that takes off from uh, William Wordsworth, William Wordsworth uh, poem called Ode to Duty. So I thought, boy, this would be great. I can pass this out and uh, we can talk about that. It would you know, just be beautiful. Well, I, uh, I got on my little, excuse me, my little, uh, I need a blue letter Bible, so I got on there and I'm, I'm going to find out what is this word, duty? It's not in the Hebrew. It's not, it's not there. There's not a word in that verse for the word duty. In fact, if you, if you were to read it, you could just leave out the word duty. For this is the whole of man. That's literally what it says. I was so sad, I don't know if you can see it. I have a crying, frowning face. <laughs> I was going to really zing this point home. But, but it's interesting. If you read nearly every translation that I read uh, supplies the word duty. So I think it's okay to put it in there. Uh, frankly, I think, you know, that uh, ESB or whoever ought to put it in italics or put a footnote or something, but they didn't do that. King James leaves it out. You know, so that's that's good. So, but that's but the point is, 
literally that to to, to uh, obey God, I mean to, to fear God and keep his commandments, this is this is the whole of man. Now some some translate this is what's true for every and by the way it's man mankind, it's Adam, Adam. This is what's true and should describe all people. But the other way to see it is this is this is what man is from God's perspective, this is what man's purpose is while he's created to fear God and to keep his commandments. So let's look at those uh, those two things. I don't have a lot of uh, well to fear God. We could talk a lot about that. We did it during our Proverbs study. Um, there uh, this this fellow Ed Welch, he does he does he shows a continuum of fearing God. I don't know you can't see that, but there's a, a continuum line there. It starts with a sinful terror of God, and then it goes from dread to trembling to astonishment to awe to reverence to devotion to trust and to worship. So he and others that I that I've read uh, say there's really two types of fear of God, fear of the Lord in the Bible. One is the uh, the appropriate terror of God because of the judgment that's coming. But when you think about the, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that's not the, we don't have that terror of God because the judgment that should be laid on us is laid on His Son, so we don't fear God in the sense of judgment, but we're still told to fear Him. Uh, a guy named Michael Reeves that I've, uh, I got his, his entire book, but this is a little excerpt from his book called Trembling and something anyway. He likes the word tremble. That tremble works for both ends. The, the, the uh, terror of, is trembling in, 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 in God's presence or the prospect of being in God's presence. It's like we see in the book of Revelation when the Lord comes uh, in his judgment, remember the people are hiding in caves and they're asking the rocks to fall upon them. That's that, that terror of, uh, that's that trembling of terror because of judgment. But then there's trembling uh, in worship and in adoration. And we've probably all done that when you've heard a beautiful piece of music or you've stood over the Grand Canyon. It has a visceral effect to it, doesn't it? And um, so that's the, that's the kind of reverential fear as we think about the, the person of God and his great uh, compassion and kindness to us uh, and his love for us. And not only who he is, but we tremble because of what he's accomplished you know, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the kind of fear that, I, that we're commanded here to have. Did y'all say awe and Oh, yeah, that's good, Stephen. All of God, yeah. yeah. I love this little, this, well, you can see my quotes there. Um, I like, the fear of God is a call that puts us, that puts us in our place. And all other fears, hopes, and admirations in their place. Well, that's what this book, uh, when people are big and God is small, um, that, that the antidote for the, for the fear of man is the fear of God. If we fear God the right way, then we won't fear fear of man. He says overcoming peer pressure, codependency, and the fear of man. I think this should be 
required reading for everybody. It's really helped. I think I'm going through it my fourth or fifth time, and it's helped me all, all the way. But look at the quote from uh, Michael Reeves. I think this is so beautiful. The cross, the cross is the most fertile soil for the fear of God. Why? Because the cross, by the forgiveness it brings, liberates us from sinful fear. But more than that, it also cultivates the most exquisitely fearful adoration of the Redeemer. For the grace of God serves as a breadcrumb trail, leading us up from the forgiveness itself to the forgiver. So I'll just uh, repeat to you what I think is so important, and that is that, that we uh, rehearse the gospel message to ourselves every day, because it's through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the cross, we could say, that we have a clear understanding of who God is and what He wants to relate to us now as His children in Christ. And it helps us to see ourselves the right way and see one another the right way and to evaluate our circumstances the right way. So, so fearing God primarily through uh, the lens of the gospel. And then to keep the law of God, uh, our time is, is going here, but just notice I've quoted a couple of passages that describe the new covenant. And, um, and the promise of the new covenant is a new heart. And God will give, God gives us a new heart uh, so that we will keep his law. Not meritorious, we don't keep it to merit his favor, but we keep it uh, with gratitude. Uh, and it's familial obedience. You, I, we've learned, we've seen this again with our little, our little grandchildren, how much they love to please their parents. I mean, little Sawyer, He'll be doing something out in the front yard and he'll say, go get mama, I want her to see what I'm doing here because it'll be pleasing to her. Uh, he's not doing that to try to gain something or he just wants to do it because of the familial relationship. They're like a little child who wants to please their parents, not for fear of punishment if they don't do it, but for love and delight because of their care. Well, and the third thing, so, so you can see, uh, if we fear God in the gospel and we're we're worshiping Him because of what He's provided for us in Christ. That indicates that that we have the new heart that God has given to us, and so we keep His commandments. And then I thought, well, Solomon, why do you add this warning about judgment as the last thing? Don't you want to end up on a you know positive note? But uh, I think again, he's just he's just saying. Well, look at my statement there uh, from uh, Kinder Kidner. The last verse drives home with a final blow that is sharp enough to hurt, but shrewd enough to jolt us out of apathy. It kills complacency to know that nothing goes unnoticed and unassessed, not even the things we disguise from ourselves. So um, when we look, so he's saying, be, be aware, know that there is a time of evaluation coming. But for us that have trusted in Christ, it's not a time of fearing judgment because what Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no, no condemnation because there's no double jeopardy in God's justice system. Uh, isn't that beautiful? The, he brought the condemnation of the judgment on his son. So if our trust is in him, he will, he will not bring it again because the son paid for it uh, for us. But also, I think the kind of the bigger a larger picture here is that um, when the judgment comes, God will make everything right. You know, today we hear 
we hear a discussion about what is right is made wrong, what is wrong is made right, what is light is made dark. And there's just so much confusion. But on that day, everything will be made right. And that should be a day that we look forward to. Now, I don't understand all that will, obviously, all of those things that will happen there for God's people, but there will not be judgment and condemnation. There may be evaluation and there may be the, uh, um, you know, the anticipation of, of uh, cleansing or of, or of rewards. Uh, but our longing is the approval of our Father, isn't it? Because we love Him. We long to hear those words, oh, my good and faithful servant, and that everything will be set right on that day. Well, I didn't leave us time to do what I'd like for you all to do, but you might think about think about those uh, what you what you gained from the study of the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, give some thought to that. Um, I, again, here's my wonderful article. It's just a, I did I did make ten copies, and I can send it to you folks, and I have your email address. But it's, it's very good. It's the underappreciated blessing of beauty. And it's, uh, it was real helpful to me to, to, to uh, hear this man's uh, understanding of Wordsworth poem uh, owed to duty. So if you want one of those, I got that. If you uh, on my email list, I'll just send it to you. You can, you can have it that way. Okay. Hey, thank you for doing this with me these 15 weeks. And if you're inclined to, we'll do it again with the book of Job. Starting the second Sunday, first Sunday, first Sunday in uh, uh, yeah, the first Sunday in January, the seventh or whatever that is. Okay, thank you all. Thank you. Mm -hmm.